Since 1774, Newark Academy has contributed to the world, engaged individuals instilled with a passion for learning, a standard of excellence, and a generosity of spirit. Scattered throughout the world today, NA alumni continue to exhibit these traits and more and have such incredible stories to share. You'll hear these stories on this podcast, NA Voices. Here's your host, Head of School, Don Austin. Thank you for joining us uh, for the premiere episode of NA Voices. I'm thrilled to welcome you to the show. Uh, and for our listeners, Adrian Wing is the Associate Dean for International and Comparative Law Programs and the Bessie Dutton Murray Professor at the University of Iowa College of Law, where she has taught since 1987. Additionally, she serves as the director of the University of Iowa Center for Human Rights, as well as the director of the France Summer Abroad Program. Adrian, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Don, so much for having me. I'd like to open by asking you to talk a little bit about your early years, your upbringing, and what led you to Newark Academy. I grew up mainly in Orange, and my mom, um, after my dad died when I was nine, she became a teacher in Orange, and she saw the Orange school system wasn't uh, a very good one. Uh, this is in the 1960s. So she enrolled me, uh, along with my sister, in a school that was called the Mary Baird School for Girls. And uh, so in seventh grade, I enrolled there. Uh, I was one of a very few uh, black uh, girls there, and I was there seventh, eighth, and ninth. And then in ninth grade, uh, the Baird School, along with lots of other schools in the Essex County area, um, decided it was going to merge. And so it was talking about merging with Newark Academy. And so I got very enamored of this idea to be able to go to Newark Academy, the famous, you know, almost 200-year-old all-boys school. And then those negotiations apparently fell through. And I'm sure our listeners know that the Baird School merged with Morristown Prep. So it's now known as Morristown Baird School. But fortunately uh, for me, uh, Newark Academy opened up to girls. Um, and so I said to my mother, I want to go to Newark Academy. And so that's how I ended up being one of the first 49 girls uh, at Newark Academy. Well, that was actually my second question for you, because as you point out, Newark Academy became fully co-educational in 1971. And you were, in fact, one of the first black women to attend and graduate from Newark Academy. Uh, what was that experience like for you, and how did it help you prepare for college and beyond? Yes. Um, well, it was very traumatic, as you could imagine, to go from an all-girls school <laughs> then to a school where I was one of only a few girls. Now, both institutions didn't have very many Black students, so that was the same, but the gender dynamic uh, was difficult. But what was great about it is because Newark Academy, it didn't have a history of treating girls in a particular way. I felt I got treated as one of the boys. So in effect, um, you know, as they were developing programming, sports, etc., cetera, um, there weren't preconceived notions of what girls could do. So rather than just cheerleading, uh, 
um, and maybe basketball, which is what Orange High School had, you know, they started a full array of things like field hockey and lacrosse and um, track and things that I participated in. So although it was, I would say, definitely a, a, a shock at first, I came uh, to enjoy it and become accustomed to that situation. And um, because I, I felt so strongly about how positive overall my situation was, um, I became the devoted alum that uh, I have I have become. And it was excellent preparation. Um, I ended up going to Princeton and Newark Academy was um, one of the feeder schools historically for Princeton. And so um, it just made sense to me that as I was looking at schools, having been a top um, student in my my grades, that the Ivy League schools, um, you know, should be schools I would have looked at. Whereas I'm sure if I had stayed at um, in Orange in the public school system, I wouldn't have had in my mind probably looking at Ivy uh, Ivy level schools. Interesting. Um, as you think back on your time at Newark Academy, were there any teachers that had a particular influence on you? Yes, the favorite teacher of my whole life uh, has been Joe Borlow. And I know he's a favorite for many, many people. And so Joe Borlow uh, taught me literature. He taught me French. Uh, and we have maintained a friendship over now, uh, you know, going toward 50 years. He's been at every one of my reunions. I have made every five-year reunion. He has sat at my table uh, when I was being honored. And so I would have to say that Joe Borlo is the favorite teacher of my entire life. And then also, secondly, I would say I really enjoyed uh, Mrs. Annette Tomeno and mm -hmm. also Mrs. Mary Berg. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your higher education. You mentioned that after um, being a strong student, a top student at Newark Academy, you went on to Princeton, and then I think you went on to Stanford Law School. Um, can you talk a little bit about those higher education experiences and and how through that time, you know, you came to the realization that you wanted to pursue law, or, or and particularly being a professor. I know that there's another yeah. chapter between law school and, and becoming a professor, but I'm just interested in, in, in your higher education. Yes. Um, so as you said, and as I said, I went to Princeton first for a bachelor's degree. And after Princeton, I got a master's degree in African studies at UCLA which mm. is where my father had attended college. And then from UCLA, I went to Stanford Law School. I'm actually a native Californian. I had lived there when I was little. So I, I wanted to go to school out West. And so I, I did two degrees out there. Now, Princeton and Stanford uh, to me were very similar to Newark Academy in that in both cases, um, these were predominantly male schools and I came in as one of a few, relatively few women and relatively few black students. And so I felt uh, at Princeton, I think I was in 
maybe the fifth class of girls that, that went to Princeton. And so to me, that was almost identical to Newark Academy. Yeah, Princeton's got more students. It was, you know, um, you know maybe almost the same age as Newark Academy. Uh, and Stanford um, had maybe, it was a little bit more co-ed, but law school, I was only maybe one of about 15% females. So I felt Newark Academy was the place where I was prepared academically and socially to excel in predominantly male elite environments. Many of my colleagues in those two institutions um, who had not attended uh, a prep school, they were having much more trouble adopting to the, the, the demographics of those two institutions, whereas I felt very, very comfortable. Um, and so while I was in college, um, you know, I, I, I started thinking about law. It wasn't something from being a young child. I didn't have any lawyers in my family, but I'd been inspired by the civil rights movement um, and uh, members of my family, my mother's side family in particular, were active in civil rights in the New York, New Jersey area. And so um, I decided in, in college that I would uh, apply to law school and then I deferred it um, to do this master's at UCLA in African studies and I did that as a result of going to Africa in college for a summer and realizing I wanted Africa in my career. So hmm. I do, I want to go to law school, but also uh, I'm going to want to have Africa in my career with law. And, and that's indeed what ended up happening. That's fascinating. Um, I want to come back to the Africa theme, but uh you you ended up you know so after i guess you had a brief stint in private practice is that right following law school yeah 5 years um after stanford i came back to new york and did 4 years in a in a big wall street firm uh that then moved to park avenue and 1 year in a smaller firm once again that, those 5 years of practice it, it was almost all male right? Yeah. Firms. And so once again, I felt like I I'm used to this. These are the same people I've been in school with, you know, since I was young. And so I did five years of practice before uh, becoming a professor. When you were in practice, were, were you intending to return to academia or was it, was it something that just kind of was on the back burner for a while? Or I guess what, what made you change paths and go from private practice back into uh, teaching? Well, um, what made me actually go into being a professor was love, not love of being a professor. At that time, <laughs> at that time I was married to a guy named uh, Dr. Enrico Melson. Uh, he's now an ex-husband, but you know, he was my then husband and he had to uh, serve in the U.S. government public health service that had paid for him to go to medical school. And so they send doctors all over the country to underserved areas. And they said to him, you're going to have to leave the Bronx where you are living now. And you're going to have to go to maybe Iowa, <laughs> to an Indian reservation to help them. And he's from Los Angeles, right? He had gone to Harvard. I met him at Stanford and, and nothing in our, you know, nothing was saying to us mid mess 
Midwest rural area. So I ended up at, at Iowa, not because of a well thought out plan that that was the next step, but basically uh, for love, you know, love that I'm going to follow my husband to where he needs to go. And what's the opportunity for me in Iowa as an international lawyer? And so, it, in other words, it was a fluke that I ended uh -huh. up in Iowa. And I tell my students, uh, whatever their background, you don't know where you're going to end up because of love, where you're going to end up in the world, what career you're going to be in. And so I have that ex-husband, Rico, <laughs> to thank for the fact that I ended up in Iowa. And then I ended up, uh, you know, for all these, all these years. But um, I had thought of being a professor somewhat while I was in practice. Um, you know, the big law firm world, after a certain number of years, it's kind of up and out. Uh, and the up would be if you became a partner. So at that point, uh, this would have been 1982 to 1986, there were no female partners in my firm or in, in most firms in New York. So it was clear that I was not going to be able to do what some of my male colleagues were able to do, which is to become a partner in a big law firm. So I knew I would couldn't stay in that world forever. And um, because I'd done well in school, and, you know, every school I ever went to, um, I had thought about teaching, but it wouldn't have been something I would have done at that particular moment. Maybe I would have come to it, you know, a few years later uh, in my life. But my mother, as I told you, she was a teacher, a high school teacher. My grandmother was a teacher. And so I was actually, when I became a professor, a third generation teacher, except I was teaching law students instead of, you know, K through 12 level. Interesting. And so you actually have been, um, I guess you've been at University of Iowa for more than 30 years. So uh, there must be some <laughs> something there that you really love as well as your you know, ex-husband who brought you there. Um, uh, I think I've told you that I, I know some. In fact, I was thinking of you the other day because there was a fellow from the University of Iowa Law School who was being quoted on Bloomberg Radio. I've, I've heard him twice in the two. I forget his name. You probably yeah, know him. Well, Professor. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. 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 Um, but I'm interested to, to ask you a little bit about how you've seen the university evolve over the time that you've been there and what, you know, what, in terms of your own teaching, what kinds of courses have you taught and what's um, given you the, the greatest satisfaction? <clears throat> yes. So uh, you're right. I've, I've finished 33 years uh, teaching there. And if you had told me, number one, that I would ever be in Iowa, I would say that was crazy. And if you told me I'd be there even two years, I would say you were crazy. So I have stayed uh, at Iowa and enjoyed it very much, despite many opportunities to go to other places uh, for a number of reasons. Um, one one is, is that Iowa City, Iowa uh, is a college town and the area is about 150,000 people. So it's actually larger than Orange, New Jersey, which I think today is still only 30 something thousand people. So I have lived in a suburban lifestyle that is very similar to Essex County, New Jersey. The only difference is okay. I have to drive almost four hours to get to Chicago rather than, you know, New York City being, being near. So the lifestyle, the suburban lifestyle I live is very similar. 
the cost of living here is dirt cheap, much, much cheaper uh, than uh, suburban New Jersey or, or, or New York. And <clears throat> the University of Iowa is a, a Big Ten school that in that sense, it's similar to UCLA. You know, these are schools that have like 50,000 people. So I had spent some time at UCLA and um, the, the, the university over the years, um, the overall, the university is fairly similar in terms of the demographics, except we have a lot more international students now. Most American universities, you know, have gotten especially a lot more Asian students. Um, in the College of Law, you know, we're a separate kind of subunit. We only have maybe 400 something students. So that's been very intimate. Uh, I have about 40 colleagues. Um, and so to me, these are kind of like, um, almost like spouses, you know, when you work with people for 10, 20, 30 years, you know them, you know their children, you grow up together, you hang out with them, um, you watch people, um, you know, their lives as they flourish. So I've really enjoyed that uh, aspect. And uh, in terms of my teaching, I'm sad now because I'm mainly an administrator at this stage of my career. As you said, I'm Associate Dean of International Programs. So I'm only teaching one course a year now. But over my career, uh, I have taught, uh, and I'll say my favorite first, constitutional law, U.S. constitutional law, comparative constitutional law, uh, international human rights, uh, a course on race and a course on gender and a course on the Middle East. And so I, I will mention constitutional law, uh, especially, um, and the constitutional law that I taught was what we call con law one, structure of government. Hmm. Everything that's happening in the United States right now, you know, in terms of the structure of government, elections, all of that, that was my specialty. And wow. A lot of people think, oh, that's the boring part. You know, constitutional law, the interesting part are, is the Bill of Rights. I say, yeah, that's right. But we're seeing now the whole nation that the structure of government is also quite essential and, and quite important. So I'd say over my whole career, I'd have to say my favorite course was uh, constitutional law. Very interesting. Um, in addition to teaching... I know that you've taken on numerous roles at the University of Iowa, including the director of, of the Human Rights Center and the director of the France Study Abroad program. Can you talk some in particular about the work you've been doing in these areas and especially human rights, I guess? Yes. Uh, and before I do that, I have to also give kudos to Joe Borlo. Joe Borlo got my French in, in top shape so that I would be able to run a program in France. I've run it now for more than 20 years where I have to speak in French. I have to read in French. I have to write in French. So uh, that also, therefore, goes to Joe Borlo. Now, more generally, um, my work in, in, in human rights um, includes, uh, as you said, the, the UI Center for Human Rights. This is a center that is based out of the law school, but we serve the whole university and the broader community. I have a small staff, maybe six, seven people, and uh, we do nearly 100 programs for the community. In March, when COVID took over and the university shut down live classes, we had to figure out what is it we're going to do in this weird period we're in. Normally in the summer, we would have done no programming, but we did 13 webinars 
this summer, and we're continuing to do webinars on a variety of topics. And we discovered one strength of, of this era is that Zoom, and we use happen to use Zoom, is a wonderful technology to do programming involving speakers from all over the world. And so, um, you know, we've been able to have themes. We have a, we've had a COVID theme. We've had a race theme. We had a theme about Supreme Court cases. Uh, and so we had a, just had a conference on voting rights. And so this has been a way in which, um, you know, rather than write an article that maybe only a few people read, we can reach out. And all of these are up on our website, uichr.org. And, you know, they're available for people from all over the world to look at and uh, and learn something about these issues. They're all like an hour long, which is a great time to have uh, speakers and also have uh, questions. So I'm, I'm very proud of this, this work uh, that my center is doing, uh, even though we're, we're now, it seems that indefinitely in a, in a, Zoom, a Zoom world. Right. Well, that's absolutely true that uh, Zoom has... And this moment has allowed, has had some dividends, right? Where we can have meetings like even this type of thing that we're doing right now, we might not have considered a year or so ago. And it's it's quite effective. Um, I'm also interested in, in your extensive travel. You mentioned that you really wanted to make, after that year um, of at UCLA, that you want to make Africa part of your career. And I know you've done a lot of work and you've traveled very widely. Um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, what that has involved and how that's enriched your life? Yeah, I think um, I've been to nearly 100 countries out of the roughly 200 countries. And some of those countries I've been to multiple times. So I know I've been to France at least 50 times. I specialized in South Africa uh, at the time I was studying, it was under apartheid, the legal segregation system. So I've been to South Africa maybe about 15 times. And one of the highlights of my career is that I was able to work on the South African constitution uh, for nearly four years. Uh, so I helped the founding mothers and fathers of that constitution. Um, and so a lot of my work has involved Southern Africa. I also worked on the Rwandan constitution, the post-genocide constitution. And then um, a lot of my work has involved the Middle East. It has involved Asia. And so I've ended up going to many countries that I, I wouldn't have even imagined. Uh, and maybe one of the, the strangest ones that I've been spending a lot of time with over the past few years is Kosovo, which is a, a brand new country. It's not even 15 years old. And so uh, my law school and my center, we have a, a program with Kosovo and we have their um, foreign affairs officers, diplomats come to Iowa. We send students to work for them. And so, um, you know, in the Zoom world, of course, we can't do direct uh, things like that. But, um, you know, the fact that probably 50 of the countries I've been to, I would have never even imagined. Of course, some of them like Kosovo didn't even exist uh, when when I was a student and and none of us know when we'll be out of the Zoom world. Um, I, I hope there'll be a time when I'll, I'll be able to do uh, real life traveling again to many of these places. Uh, we have my my law school. We have 14 exchange programs with different schools around the world, and I'd like to visit them again. But you know, if it doesn't happen for whatever reason, uh, I've enjoyed 
all of that travel uh, up up to this point, and uh, I hope it will resume uh, at some some point. Well, I, I I think we can we can be optimistic uh, about a vaccine, and maybe not for a year or so, but eventually we should be able to to travel again. Um, yeah, that's a fascinating story. I'm interested in, you know, when you've helped these countries develop their constitutions, um, again, do you have a particular uh, area of focus that you are specializing in when you do that? And I'm, yeah. could you talk a little bit about that? Well, I help them overall because one of the courses I, I mentioned I teach or taught was comparative constitutional law. So, you know, these founding mothers and fathers will say, well, what does country X do on this topic? It could be any topic. And I can pull it up and say, okay. these 18 countries do this with respect to whether they have a president or a prime minister. These 20 countries have, you know, you know whatever the issue is, they, they will have a ombud for the whole country, somebody that looks at diversity issues. And so um, I, I help with the entire document, but since uh, my own specialties have involved equality, equality issues, especially race and gender, um, I would um, naturally give uh, a lot of input into things involving those topics. In South Africa's case, uh, they had the first constitution that had sexual orientation in the constitution as a grounds for which you cannot discriminate. So that was mind boggling. This is like 1996, a constitution that included not only no race discrimination, no gender discrimination, but no sexual orientation discrimination. And part of the reason I enjoyed working on the constitutions is that, you know, our constitution, uh, it's, it's very, uh, you know, of course, it's it's very old. Uh, it's very hard to change it. And it was based on norms from the 1700s. So when you write constitutions for the 21st century, they're based on 21st century norms. So, um, you know, we could put in uh, the right to health, for instance, in these constitutions, which mm -hmm. we know is not in the U.S. Constitution, even though we may have a better health system on certain levels than some other countries where people will come from all over the world for certain advanced treatments, but we don't have the basic right to health uh, in the constitution, only in statutes, you know, et cetera. That's really, really fascinating. Um, um, I wanted to ask you sort of switching gears a little bit. Uh, when we had the uh, Equity and Inclusion Summit last summer, which you participated in, uh, one of our keynote speakers was Dr. Eddie Moore. Um, and he, in you know, in the conversation leading up to his uh, comments, mentioned that you were one of his mentors, uh, and he was very grateful and I thought gracious about acknowledging that. Um, I'm curious to ask you, who were some of your mentors? Um, you've mentioned, of course, Joe Borlo, but I'm wondering, in in other in legal fields or in other work, do you can you identify some of your mentors? Yes. Um... Uh, Dr. Eddie Moore, I knew since he was a student getting a PhD at the University of Iowa. So I've known him over 20 years. And when he said he was going to speak at Newark Academy, I said, what? That's my alma mater. So it was wonderful. Um, and I'm happy to continue to be a mentor to him, even though he's you know far surpassed many things I've done. But for my own mentors, uh, interestingly, all of my mentors uh, have been men. Uh, and that was because, you know, in all the places I either went to school or worked, 
it was they were mainly men. So I had um, a mentor at Princeton named Professor Mike Mitchell in the political science department. When I went to Stanford, I had a mentor, Professor Bill Gould, uh, and I stay in touch with Professor Gould. We were like, you know, emailing this week and he's in his 80s. And I brought him a number of times to Iowa to speak. And so these, I was proud that I could have a mentorship of over 40 years. And then the real reason that I could get a job at the University of Iowa College of Law was because I had a, a person named Professor Burns Weston of Iowa, who I had met through the American Society of International Law. And he was kind of like a distant mentor type of a person to me, but he was the one uh, who had me come when I came to Iowa, was able to, you know, introduce me to the faculty and I got the job there. And in my years uh, working there, uh, he was my main mentor and he was the Bessie Dutton Murray professor of law. And when he retired, uh, it was one of my proudest moments when I was named the Bessie Dutton Murray professor of law, uh, you know, that's wonderful international law uh, chair. And so, uh, and he passed away recently uh, too. So one, only one of my mentors, uh, Bill Gould is still <clears throat> living, but all of these men live in my, in my heart. And I mm -hmm. say to my students, uh, you can't tell who's going to be a mentor. They can be a different uh, gender, a different, you know, uh, a different sexual orientation, a different race. You cannot tell. And they can also be younger than you. Uh, don't mm -hmm. assume they always have to be older. And then you become a mentor to others. And that should be part of how you should view your career, whatever your field is, that uh, you first get mentored and then you must become a mentor in not just your paid day job, but in other activities that you may be involved in, uh, in your community. That's uh, absolutely. Um, I'm curious, given that you've been such a trailblazer as a, as a black woman, you know, in fields that you've, I, I, that you've properly described as heavily male. Uh, if you have taken a particular interest in, in mentoring women and in particular black women in your career, is that something that, and that you can, I mean, obviously Eddie Moore was somebody um, who you helped, but has that been a priority for you? Yes, it's definitely been a priority, as you would imagine, uh, to when I mentor, to make sure I am mentoring women, that I'm mentoring people of color, that I'm mentoring black women. Um, as a professor, everybody knows you get like a research assistant. Uh, Iowa, we have a program where I can have unlimited research assistants. So right now I have 18 research assistants. Wow. <laughs> 18. <laughs> And I just interviewed a bunch more. I'm probably going to hire four or five more. And so these are people from all over the world, male, female, gay, straight. I mean, every background, every religion. And I view them being my RA as a, as a mentorship. And so I've had, I don't know, I've had maybe thousands of students that have been my RAs over these 30, 30 plus years. And I stay in touch with them and through social media, especially Facebook, you know, I'm able to watch their whole career. And <clears throat> I'm delighted that in my time, I have, have mentored many um, people of every type. Um, 
including uh, black women, but also including white men from Iowa. (laughs) (laughs) That's been fun too. (laughs) That's extraordinary. You have had so many uh, amazing accomplishments. Um, As you as you sort of look back on all of that, are there any particularly uh, proud professional achievements, things that you are most happy or most proud of? Well, um, one of them would be getting tenure at the University of Iowa because uh, hopefully the audience is familiar when you get tenure, it's basically like a job for life and gives you academic freedom. So many of the things I've done, I might not have been able to do uh, if I had been in the private sector, you know, just in a regular job. Uh, And so getting tenure uh, was very important. And there's very few professors now in the young generations, you know, who are being hired in the tenure track. So it's something that's probably going to vanish, uh, either because we'll die off those of us with tenure and schools are not, you know, hiring that way. Um, and so as a tenured professor, another thing I was very proud of a number of years ago is I was, uh, given an award, um, uh, for excellence from the Iowa Board of Regents. That's like the trustees for the whole system. And so they only pick six faculty a year from the three uh, regents universities. Um, and uh, University of Iowa alone has 3,000 professors. So for them to acknowledge what I had done in my career um, as one of six people you know, that year, that was amazing. But in addition to my professional achievements, uh, I'm also very proud of the fact that I have mothered seven children, two of whom are my biological sons by my ex-husband, and five five others, including two Ethiopian young ladies who came to America as refugees. And I'm also now grandmothering 15 uh, grandchildren so far, and they range in age three to age 22. Wow. And so I'm very proud, of course, of not only professional achievements, but uh, the personal uh, achievements of uh, being involved on an on a intimate basis with all of these people. And two of my children have not even started producing grandchildren yet. They just got married in the, the past the year or two years. So I expect that I may get some more uh, grandchildren and I might even end up being a great grandmother from the oldest of the grandchildren (laughs) before I'm a grandmother from the youngest of my children. That is extraordinary. Um, Well, you must have, you must have wonderful family gatherings when, when, when you can, right? Post-COVID. Yeah. I also understand that you're a poet. Do you uh, have a favorite poet or poem that you would share with us? Yes. Uh, This is another thing I have to thank Joe Borlo for, uh, a love of literature. Um, And so uh, my favorite poet when I was young was E.E. Cummings. Okay. And, you know, I would write in his style without the capitals, et cetera. But in more recent uh, decades, I've come to love uh, the poems of Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. And, um, and my favorite poem is one of hers, which is called Still I Rise. Oh, yes. And, um, so I often end some of my speeches uh, in, in her poem, which is a rousing, proud poem. And myself, I, I'm not writing poetry myself so much anymore. I was writing it when I was much younger. 
Uh, and I hope um, maybe when I retire, um, if I retire, uh, that I might get back uh, to my poetry again. That's nice. Um, Adrian, you mentioned France several times. I think you may know that I, I uh, used to teach French and lived in France. You mentioned you've been there 50 times. Do you have any sort of special secret favorite places in France? Well, my program uh, that I direct for the University of Iowa College of Law is based partially in Paris for one week, but then the rest of the month, we are in a beach town that's called Arcachon. Oh, yeah. It's on the Atlantic On the Atlantic, Ocean. yep. Yeah. Right, not on the, the Riviera, but on the Atlantic Ocean. And it's a beach town that is very well known to any French person but it's not an international beach town. So that is my favorite place uh, in France is, is Arcachon. And this summer, 2020, of course, we had to cancel the program for the first time since its founding in 1984. So I did not get there. And it, I mean, my heart, my soul is in that place. I stay in the same apartment every year. It's right on the ocean, uh, you know, with a, a big balcony and, and even if I retire, um, I, I definitely will still plan um, to spend some time in Arcachon. Uh, and there's only about 10,000 people in the town when I'm there in May and June. But, you know, in the summer months when all the French go on vacation, it gets 100,000. Wow. So I think I, I prefer it when, when I go, when it's easy to walk around and, and enjoy it. Well, that sounds, that sounds nice to... Imagine spending some some relaxing time in Arcachon. Um, I guess I want to end by coming back to Newark Academy. You have been, as you've mentioned, a very loyal alum, enthusiastically returning to reunions, giving back to the school in so many ways. Um, and we're very grateful for that. And we're very proud of all you have done uh, in your distinguished career. I guess my question for you is what advice would you give to today's Newark Academy students? Yes, um, I would give them the same advice. Um, you know, I would have given them this advice when I, when I got out. Um, be loyal to Newark Academy. Uh, you know, when I look at the participation rates, you know, for annual giving, et cetera, uh, it should be much higher. So even though you're going to get an alma mater for your college, maybe grad school, you should remember Newark Academy and all that it will have given you. I have contributed every year since uh, I became a lawyer in 1982. I funded an award. It used to be, um, that doesn't exist now, but it was the Johnny Wing Award for dealing with race relations. Um, I think, uh, you know, people should give as much as they can. Obviously, as a professor and not a big law firm partner, I, I don't have the resources, um, you know, that some of our alums have. I wish I could add more zeros to my, uh, you know, my amount each year, but I will continue giving every year uh, until I die. <laughs> and I've told my, my sons, who are the executors of my will, uh, that uh, they should continue giving to Newark Academy. And uh, I may, you know, do one of these things where you have planned giving and and I will name Newark Academy as one of the the sources uh, after my demise <laughs> that 
continue to get my resources. One of my biggest regrets is that because I do not live in suburban New Jersey, that I was not able to send my children or my grandchildren uh, to Newark Academy, but uh, I am eternally grateful for everything that the school did for me and to have this opportunity to to chat with you and to share with my fellow alums. Um, and so I would tell everyone, uh, including not only current students, but their parents and others to uh, be loyal and to continue to support the Academy uh, to the best of their abilities. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you, Adrian, for that message and for this really fascinating retrospective on your incredible career. It's been really great talking with you. Thank you so much, Don, and I wish you and, and everyone in our Newark Academy community a good, healthy, safe uh, rest of 2020. Well, same to you. Thank you for listening to NA Voices. If you have a story that you'd like to share, please email us at alumni at newarka.edu.